Merry Christmas, Uncle. God save you, cried a cheerful voice. It was the voice of Scrooge's nephew, who came upon him so quickly that this was the first intimation he had of his approach. Bah, said Scrooge. Humbug. He had so heated himself with rapid walking in the fog and frost, this nephew of Scrooge's, that he was all in a glow. His face was ruddy and handsome, his eyes sparkled, and his breath smoked again. Christmas a humbug, uncle, said Scrooge's nephew. You don't mean that, I'm sure. I do, said Scrooge. Merry Christmas. What right have you to be merry? What reason have you to be merry? You're poor enough. Come then, returned the nephew gaily. What right have you to be dismal? What reason have you to be morose? You're rich enough. Scrooge, having no better answer ready on the spur of the moment, said bah again and followed it up with humbug. Don't be so cross, uncle, said the nephew. What else can I be, returned the uncle, when I live in such a world of fools as this? Merry Christmas. Out upon Merry Christmas. What's Christmas time to you but a time for paying bills without money? A time for finding yourself a year older, but not an hour richer. A time for balancing your books and having every item in them through a round dozen of months presented dead against you. If I could work my will, said Scrooge indignantly, every idiot who goes about with Merry Christmas on his lips should be boiled with his own pudding and buried with a stake of holly through his heart. He should. Uncle, pleaded the nephew. Nephew, returned the uncle sternly, keep Christmas in your own way and let me keep it in mine. Keep it, repeated Scrooge's nephew, but you don't keep it. Let me leave it alone then, said Scrooge. Much good may it do to you. Much good it has ever done you. There are many things from which I might have derived good by which I have not profited, I dare say, returned the nephew. Christmas among the rest. But I am sure that I have always thought of Christmas time when it has come around, apart from the veneration due to its sacred name and origin, if anything belonging to it can be apart from that, as a good time, a kind, forgiving, charitable, pleasant time, the only time I know of in the long calendar of the year when men and women seem by one consent to open their shut-up hearts freely and to think of people below them as if they really were fellow passengers to the grave and not another race of creatures bound on other journeys. And therefore, uncle, though it has never put a scrap of gold or silver in my pocket, I believe that it has done me good and will do me good. And I say, God bless it. Charles Dickens, A Christmas Carol. Welcome to Post Biblical, the podcast that asks the question, how do we get from Jesus to here? I'm your host, Jonathan Kleinsmith. This is the part where I declare my biases. I am a Christian and a pastor, and this Jesus stuff isn't just interesting to me, it's life-changing. But the purpose of this podcast isn't for me to proselytize or make converts, it's to educate. And I'm not really much of an expert. I have a master's degree in divinity, whatever that means, but it only included a few classes on the history of the church. So really, I'm more of an advanced layman at best. I'm hoping to learn a few things along the way. So whether you're a Christian or atheist, Jew or Gentile, an Oklahoma City Thunder fan or just wrong about sports, I hope you get something out of this podcast on church history. A reminder, the show will usually be split up into two main sections, an opening narrative describing some element of church history in a hopefully unbiased way, 
and The Potluck, where I will have conversations with expert guests and discuss the implications of what we just learned. During the potluck sections, my biases are more likely to shine through. So if you just want pure history, feel free to stop listening once the narrative portion is finished. So sit back, relax, and let's dive into some church history. Hello, and welcome to our first ever uh, special episode. I think it's safe to say that Christmas is the most popular holiday in the world. Even folks that aren't Christians celebrate Christmas. People take off work for Christmas. Entire economies are controlled by Christmas. Uh, Podcasters even take breaks from their normally scheduled programs to make special Christmas-themed episodes. But what is Christmas? Where did this holiday come from? And why do we have so many weird ways of celebrating it? Well, I'm glad you asked. The term Christmas in English has its roots in the Old English phrase Christus Mace, which translates to Christ's Mass, or the Mass of Christ. A Mass is a Catholic worship service centered on the Eucharist, that's the Lord's Supper, uh, also known as Communion. Uh, So Christ's Mass is just a worship service that centers on Jesus' birth. Now, believe it or not, we have pretty solid evidence that Easter has probably been celebrated in perpetuity since the Church's very founding but very little evidence that Christmas was celebrated at all by primitive Christians. But there are strong traditions of winter holy days around this time of year in other religious traditions. Long before the echoes of Christmas carols filled the air, early Europeans were already engaged in a different kind of hymn, if you will. In a ritual dance with the darkest days of winter, they celebrated light and birth, Uh, The winter solstice, that celestial moment when the sun begins its triumphant return, became the focal point of rejoicing. Uh, In Scandinavia, people marked the occasion with Yule, a celebration stretching from December 21st, the winter solstice, through January. Fathers and sons, acknowledging the rebirth of the sun, kindled massive logs that crackled and danced for up to 12 days. Each spark, they believed, foretold the birth of a new pig or calf in the coming year. Further south, the end of December revealed a perfect time for revelry across most of Europe. Cattle were slaughtered, sparing them from the winter's hunger and providing a rare abundance of fresh meat. Meanwhile, the fruits of a year's labor, wine and beer, reached the pinnacle of fermentation, ready to be savored. In what would become Germany, A different dance unfolded as many paid homage to the pagan god Odin during the midwinter holiday. Terrified of Odin's nocturnal flights, believed to determine the fates of mortals, many opted to stay indoors, shrouded in the safety of their homes. In pre-Christian Rome, winters bore a different temperament. Saturnalia, a month-long spectacle in honor of Saturn, the god of agriculture, unfolded in a hedonistic frenzy. As the solstice approached, social norms inverted. Enslaved individuals tasted temporary freedom, and the Roman world was turned topsy-turvy. Around the same time, the elite celebrated the birthday of Mithra, the god of the unconquerable sun, on December 25th. Born of a rock, Mithra's infancy marked the most sacred day of the Roman year for some, a celestial testament to the eternal dance of light and darkness. But with the rise of the Emperor Constantine and the legalization of Christianity followed quickly by its rise in status to the official religion of the Roman Empire, these holidays fell out of fashion and would soon be made illegal. 
And suddenly the question of when to celebrate the birth of Jesus began to come into focus. In 354 CE, the Roman Bishop Liberius proclaimed December 25th as the official date, strategically aligning it with those existing pagan festivities we just mentioned, such as Saturnalia. The church eventually established a liturgical season leading up to the celebration of Christmas called Advent. The term Advent is derived from the Latin word Adventus, meaning coming or arrival. The earliest mention of a preparatory period before Christmas dates back to the Council of Saragossa in 380 CE. Now, believe it or not, the church was borrowing from Roman culture with the creation of this season. In ancient Rome, the practice of Adventus was a grandiose affair, reserved for the arrival of emperors or victorious generals returning from conquests. The citizens would prepare for the event with great anticipation, decorating the streets and public spaces, and the air would be charged with a sense of expectation. The term Adventus itself carried a weight of political and imperial significance, symbolizing the arrival of a leader who would bring prosperity, stability, and in some cases, a sense of renewal to the Roman Empire. Now, Advent in Christianity would also come to mark a period of expectation and preparation for the celebration of the birth of Jesus Christ. The faithful, like the citizens of ancient Rome, were to engage in a collective anticipation, not for a conquering hero, but for the arrival of a savior whose message promised spiritual prosperity, peace, and renewal. The Adventists of emperors and leaders in Rome and the advent of Jesus both embody a sense of waiting and readiness. In Rome, the anticipation centered around the arrival of a temporal leader who held the promise of earthly glory and power. In Christianity, Advent focuses on the coming of a resurrected Messiah whose birth brings the hope of salvation and divine transformation. In ancient Rome, triumphal arches, processions, and elaborate ceremonies were staged to magnify the significance of the emperor's arrival. In Christian Advent, the lighting of candles on the Advent wreath, the reading of prophetic scriptures, and the symbolic themes of hope, peace, joy, and love convey the profound meaning of Christ's coming. While the Roman Adventists celebrated the earthly might of an emperor, the Christian Advent transcends the temporal and points to the eternal. It directs attention not to the might of a conquering hero, but to the humility of a child born in a manger whose message of love and redemption echoes through the ages. Okay, that bordered on sermonizing, I apologize. Let's get back to the history stuff, shall we? The celebration of Christmas and Advent in these early years was solemn and focused on religious observances. Following the fall of the Western Roman Empire in 476 CE, Europe entered a period we often refer to as the Dark Ages, although historians now prefer the term Early Middle Ages. Despite the political upheaval, Christmas endured, albeit with regional variations. Monasteries played a crucial role in preserving and adapting Christmas traditions. In the Eastern Roman Empire, which we anachronistically call the Byzantine Empire, the celebration of Christmas continued with a distinct Byzantine flavor. The Emperor Justinian I, who reigned from 527 to 565, officially recognized Christmas as a public festival, solidifying its place in the Christian calendar. It's worth noting that Easter, and possibly even Epiphany, the holiday a few weeks after Christmas that celebrates Jesus' baptism, were more important holidays in the Byzantine Empire. Nevertheless, for the elite, Christmas celebrations were infused with the imperial grandeur characteristic of the Byzantine court. 
Christmas was a religious feast with a blend of liturgical solemnity and cultural festivities. Some of the ways that they celebrated may look a bit familiar to us. The focal point of Byzantine Christmas celebrations was the Divine Liturgy, a sacred worship service held in Byzantine churches. The liturgy included hymns, prayers, and readings from the Gospels that recounted the story of the Nativity. Byzantine churches were adorned with intricate mosaics and icons and often featured images depicting scenes from the Nativity story. The faithful would gather to venerate these sacred images and participate in the visual storytelling of Christ's birth. Elaborate processions led by clergy and attended by the imperial court traversed the streets near major churches. These processions symbolized the journey to Bethlehem and often included the display of relics or religious artifacts. The Byzantine emperor played a central role in the religious celebrations. The emperor, along with members of the imperial court, would attend special services emphasizing the connection between the imperial authority and the Christian faith. Emperors were also known to engage in acts of charity during the Christmas season. This could involve distributing alms to the poor, providing food to the needy, or supporting the construction or renovation of churches. As Christmas marked the end of the Advent fast, feasting became an integral part of the celebrations. The Byzantine upper crust would host banquets where rich and indulgent foods were served to commemorate the joyous occasion. Exchanging gifts was a Byzantine practice during the Christmas season as well. The emperor and members of the court exchanged gifts as a symbol of goodwill and to reinforce social bonds. Now, we don't have the greatest information on how the public, that is the non-elites, celebrated Christmas, but it's safe to say that the general populace participated in communal celebrations, attending church services and joining in public festivities. Streets might be adorned with decorations and markets could bustle with activity as people prepared for the celebrations. The Byzantine Empire had a rich tradition of theatrical performances and entertainments, during Christmas, public squares might host performances, including dramatic reenactments of biblical stories or festive music and dances. The Byzantines continued certain traditions from the Roman Empire, such as the use of evergreen decorations, festive lighting, and symbolic representations of seasonal abundance. As time moved on, Christmas traditions emerged all over the Christian world. In the 13th century, legend has it that a famous saint even set up the world's first Christmas pageant. St. Francis, a friar and deacon, embarked on a pilgrimage to the Holy Land in the years 1219 and 1220. His footsteps traced the sacred sites of Christ's life from birth to resurrection. These encounters didn't merely stay within the pages of scripture for him. They became livid, tangible experiences that fueled Francis's desire to share the essence of Christ's life. Fast forward to November of 1223. St. Francis, now in Rome, awaiting the Pope's approval for the final rule of his friars, carried within him a vision, a vision born from his earlier experiences and the desire to make Christ's story palpable to all. His destination? Greccio, a hill town he knew well, about 50 miles north of Rome. Two weeks before Christmas, Francis approached his friend Giovanni Valita, the lord of Greccio. He asked him to prepare a cave adorned with live animals and a manger filled with hay. For him, this probably wasn't mere theatrics. It was a living representation, an attempt to transport the people to that sacred night in Bethlehem. According to Brother Thomas of Celano, the first biographer of St. Francis, the friar's intention was clear. Represent the birth of that child in Bethlehem in such a way 
that with our bodily eyes we may see what he suffered for lack of the necessities of a newborn babe. On that December night in 1223, beneath the starlit sky, the people of Grecchio gathered at the craggy scene. Fires flickered, candles and torches lit the dark, and St. Francis, a deacon, proclaimed the gospel and preached the homily. According to eyewitness accounts, a miracle even transpired. Giovanni Valita claims to witness a real infant appearing in the empty major. St. Francis allegedly even cradled the child in his arms. You can take all that with a grain of salt, of course, but the story does highlight how Christmas traditions continued to evolve. Christmas celebrations around the world could take on diverse forms. In Ethiopia, the ancient Christian kingdom of Aksum celebrated Christmas on January 7th, following the Julian calendar. To this day, Christmas celebrations in Aksum are often accompanied by traditional dances and music. The sounds of drums, flutes, and other instruments resonate in the air as people express their joy and gratitude. By the late medieval period in England, Christmas had become a regal affair. In 1215, the Magna Carta included a clause declaring a ceasefire for the Christmas season, allowing even the most bitter enemies to set aside their differences temporarily. By the 15th century, English and French courts celebrated with extravagant feasts, pageantry, and the exchange of luxurious gifts. The Tudor period under Henry VII saw the popularity of the 12 days of Christmas as a festive period, marked by revelry and merriment. The Tudor monarchs, particularly Elizabeth I, played a crucial role in shaping the holiday traditions we recognize today. The Reformation in the 16th century led to a period of turbulence for Christmas. Some Protestant groups, notably the Puritans in England and the Calvinists in Geneva, rejected the holiday due to its perceived excesses and connections to Catholicism. In fact, in 1647, England's Parliament officially banned the celebration of Christmas. It wasn't all bad, though. It's believed that it was during this period that Christmas trees began to become popular. Now, to backtrack just a bit, the tradition of decorating Christmas trees has roots in both ancient pagan customs and more recent Christian traditions. The use of evergreen trees in winter celebrations predates Christianity, and various cultures have incorporated similar practices into their festivities for centuries. Ancient cultures such as the Egyptians, Romans, and Celts revered evergreen trees as symbols of life and fertility during the winter months. The practice of bringing greenery indoors was thought to ward off evil spirits and celebrate the persistence of life in the midst of winter. By the Middle Ages, the use of evergreens as part of winter celebrations became more widespread in Europe. Christians adapted these customs, imbuing them with new symbolism. The triangular shape of the tree was seen as a representation of the Holy Trinity, and the evergreen nature of the tree symbolized the eternal life offered through faith in Jesus Christ. In medieval mystery plays that depicted biblical themes, an evergreen tree known as the Paradise Tree was used as a prop to represent the tree of knowledge in the Garden of Eden. These plays were performed in churches, and some scholars believe that the Paradise Tree became a precursor to the Christmas tree. The tradition of the Christmas tree as we know it today is often traced back to 16th century Germany. It is said that Protestant reformer Martin Luther, yes, that Martin Luther, inspired by the twinkling stars through the branches of a pine tree, introduced candles to the tree to recreate the beauty of the night sky. This is considered by some to be the origin of Christmas tree lights, but again, it's fairly hard to verify that. 
What we can say for sure is that it seems that by this period, decorating trees was at least starting to become a thing. The custom of decorating Christmas trees gained popularity in various European countries during the 17th and 18th century. It became a prominent part of German and English holiday celebration, with trees adorned with candles, apples, nuts, and other decorations. The Christmas tree gained further recognition when Queen Victoria and Prince Albert, who had German roots, were depicted with their decorated Christmas tree in a popular illustration in the Illustrated London News in 1848. The image contributed to the popularization of the Christmas tree in Victorian England and eventually the United States. German immigrants brought the tradition of the Christmas tree to America in the 19th century, and it became more widespread during the Victorian era. By the early 20th century, the Christmas tree had become a central and cherished element of holiday celebrations in many Western cultures. Okay, so we've got the date, we've got the spiritual practices, we have the gift giving, and we even have the tree. But I know what you're thinking, there's somebody missing. What about Santa? First off, Santa is real. At least he was real. That is to say, at least the guy we think of as Santa, St. Nicholas, was real. St. Nicholas, also known as Nicolaus of Myra, was a Christian bishop who lived in the 4th century in the city of Myra, located in what is now modern-day Turkey. He was born around 270 AD and became one of the most beloved and revered saints in Christian tradition. St. Nicholas is particularly known for his acts of generosity and kindness, and these qualities eventually contributed to his association with Christmas. But then there's also that probably apocryphal story of him punching a guy for being a heretic. Now, there are lots of folks sharing memes of him doing this now on social media. Most just think it's funny that Santa punched a guy. But some are actually using it to normalize using violence against people who don't agree with your theological views. I agree with author and church historian Luke J. Wilson, who points out that this sentiment challenges the teachings of Jesus on how to deal with our enemies. Jesus advocated for practices such as loving and praying for your enemies, turning the other cheeks, that's in Matthew, overcoming evil with good, that's in Roman, being gentle and not violent, that's in Timothy, avoiding quick-temperedness, that's in Titus, and recognizing that a soft answer turns away wrath, that's in Proverbs. And anyways, the story comes over a thousand years after St. Nick's death and seems to be at odds with the rest of what we know about his character. So what do we know about him? Well, according to the sources, which include hagiographies or holy biographies about saints, which tend to be dismissed as historical sources, St. Nicholas inherited wealth but chose to use it for the benefit of others, especially those in need. One famous story recounts how he secretly provided dowries to three poor sisters to save them from a life of destitution or potential servitude. Legend has it that he tossed bags of gold through the window, and these bags landed in stockings or shoes left out to dry. This story is often cited as the origin of the tradition of hanging stockings for gifts. St. Nicholas was widely recognized as a protector of children and sailors. The image of a benevolent figure watching over the vulnerable became an integral part of his legend. Sailors, in particular, revered him for his ability to calm storms and guide ships to safety. Numerous stories and miracles were attributed to St. Nicholas. These include healing the sick, providing food during times of famine, and rescuing people from perilous situations. His reputation for performing miracles contributed to his popularity as a saint. 
St. Nicholas was officially recognized as a saint by the Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church. His feast day, December 6th, became a day to honor his memory and legacy. On this day, communities would engage in acts of charity and generosity, reflecting the saint's own virtues. The devotion to St. Nicholas spread across Europe, and various regions developed their own customs and traditions associated with him. In some areas, St. Nicholas was a gift giver who visited homes, leaving presents for children on the night of December 5th. So how did St. Nick become Santa? In late medieval Europe, the feast day of St. Nicholas on December 6th became a time for communities to engage in acts of charity and gift giving. In some regions, a figure resembling St. Nicholas would visit homes to distribute gifts to children. This tradition laid the groundwork for the association of St. Nicholas with gift giving. Dutch settlers brought their own traditions to America, including the character of Sinterklaas, a figure based on St. Nicholas. And I think if you look at the name close enough, you could see how we get Sinterklaas from St. Nicholas. Well, Sinterklaas had distinctive features, including a red bishop's robe, a long white beard, and a staff. The Dutch celebration of Sinterklaas involved gift giving and festive processions. In the early years of the American colonies, the Dutch tradition of Sinterklaas began to merge with English Christmas customs. The figure of Santa Claus started to take shape with the name Santa Claus being an anglicized version of Sinterklaas. Visual representations of Santa Claus began to emerge in the 19th century. The famous political cartoonist Thomas Nast played a significant role in shaping the modern image of Santa Claus. Nast's illustrations for Harper's Weekly in the 1860s depicted Santa as a rotund, jolly figure with a white beard, red suit, and sack of toys. The 1823 publication of A Visit from St. Nicholas, commonly known as The Night Before Christmas, by Clement Clark Moore, who just happened to be an Episcopalian minister, further contributed to the popularization of the modern Santa Claus. Moore's poem describes Santa as a joyful, gift-bearing figure who arrives on Christmas Eve in a sleigh pulled by a reindeer. The iconic modern image of Santa Claus that we probably think of today received a significant boost from Coca-Cola advertising campaign in the 1930s. Haddon Sunblom, an illustrator hired by Coca-Cola, created images of Santa enjoying Coke and depicted him as a warm, approachable figure. These advertisements solidified the image of Santa as we recognize him today. But believe it or not, in the United States, Christmas wasn't even that big of a deal until the middle of the 19th century. If you'll recall, the Puritans actually made Christmas illegal after the English Civil War. The ascent of Oliver Cromwell and his Puritan forces in England in 1645 marked the moment when the Yuletide festivities faced a dire threat. Committed to purging England of perceived decadence, the Puritans went so far as to cancel Christmas. Now in England, eventually the monarchy was restored, and with its return came the revival of Christmas. But across the Atlantic, the Pilgrims, staunch English separatists who arrived in America in 1620, held even more Orthodox Puritan beliefs than Oliver Cromwell had. Consequently, Christmas was not deemed a holiday in early America. In fact, in Boston from 1659 to 1681, the celebration of Christmas was outright outlawed, and anyone exhibiting festive spirit risked a fine of five shillings. Following the American Revolution, English customs, including Christmas, fell out of favor. It wasn't until June 26, 1870, that Christmas was officially declared a federal holiday. 
So let's zoom in on the 19th century, a time when Americans undertook the reinvention of Christmas, transforming it from a raucous carnival into a family-centered day of peace and nostalgia. The early 19th century was marked by class conflict and societal turmoil, with high unemployment and gang rioting during the Christmas season. In response to a Christmas riot in 1828, New York City Council established the city's first police force. This prompted certain members of the upper class to advocate for a change in how Christmas was celebrated in America. In 1819, Washington Irving, a best-selling author, penned The Sketchbook of Jeffrey Crayon, Gentleman, featuring stories about Christmas celebrations in an English manor house. Irving envisioned Christmas as a peaceful, warm-hearted holiday bringing diverse groups together, transcending lines of wealth and social status. Meanwhile, English author Charles Dickens crafted the timeless holiday tale, A Christmas Carol, emphasizing the importance of charity and goodwill. The 1800s also witnessed a shift in family dynamics, with families becoming less disciplined and more attuned to the emotional needs of children. Christmas emerged as a day for families to shower attention and gifts on their children without fear of spoiling them. As America embraced Christmas as an ideal family holiday, old customs were resurrected. The nation looked to recent immigrants and Catholic and Episcopalian churches to shape their celebration. Over the next century, Americans crafted a Christmas tradition uniquely their own, blending elements from various customs such as decorating trees, sending holiday cards, and exchanging gifts. While many believed that they were upholding centuries-old traditions, Americans had, in fact, reinvented Christmas to meet the cultural needs of a burgeoning nation. In the crucible of history, the once obscure holiday had transformed into a cornerstone of American cultural identity. So the holiday we have now didn't come from nowhere. It evolved over time and is unique to each culture that celebrates it. I mean, sure, the primitive church didn't really celebrate Jesus's birthday. Advent was a shot at the Roman imperial cult that no longer exists. For a while, Santa was actually better known for punching people, Christmas trees may have been borrowed from other cultures, and Christmas wasn't even an official American holiday until 1870, but don't you dare attack this timeless and sacred Christian holy day. I mean, when else am I supposed to feel this good about buying my family a bunch of junk they don't need? What could honor Jesus, the son of a day laborer and an unimportant backbiter of the Roman Empire, who was literally born in a barn more than that? Merry Christmas, you filthy animals. See you next time. Thank you.